0: Arthur, what do you see, buddy? Arthur's just, like, so curious. Look at him. Arthur, do you see yourself? Oh, okay. He knows what we're talking about him. Yeah, He's very smart. Meow.
1: I'm Justin. I'm a Skalcom librarian. My pronouns are he and him.
2: I'm Sadie. I work IT at a public library, and my pronouns are they, them.
1: I'm Jay. I'm a music library director, and my pronouns are he, him. And we have a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Hi, my
3: name is Whitney Trittine. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania, where I work on book history and digital humanities.
1: Yeah! Welcome.
3: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
1: So we have, let's see, how did this all come together? Me and Jay went to a webinar you presented about digital humanities a while back. And I think this had something to do with our digital humanities episode a while ago. That
0: and like the digital garden stuff I'm into maybe. Yeah. Yeah. We were both just vibing with it though, I remember.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And also, I believe you know Dot Porter?
3: Yes. Yeah, fabulous, digital, humanist, codicologist, book historian, person, colleague here at Penn with me, yeah.
1: Yeah, she came on and talked about the Article Finder Network. Awesome. I wonder if that's still going. Probably is.
3: Very cool. Yeah, we're working on a project um, next year to extend some of her work on kind of digitizing collation formulas into this thing I've been working on called Manicule, which is a way of publishing old images of old books online with kind of rich annotations and things like that, but also visualizing the structure. So yeah, I'm excited to work a little more closely with her next year.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Talking about, uh, I mean, the, the problem is like a codex is very hard to display in digital formats, you know, we have these things we call pages but they're not pages and they actually in fact function more like scrolls really
3: totally yeah and we get the kind of flattened vertical scrolling of pages as opposed to seeing page openings or understanding the book as a three-dimensional object so thinking about ways to visualize that better using digital tools
1: yeah put it on the internet put it mm-hmm. on the internet and that'll make you understand it three-dimensionally you, you put it in a scanner put it in a microwave scanner scans (laughs) anyway. So we do talk about digital humanities and stuff. We all have different interests and it comes up once in a while, but uh, I wanted to talk about your research because we talk a lot about constructing information and meaning and changes in technology. And I think the subject we're going to talk about today is very interesting. Uh, as a person who lived in a time that was where information access was changing and also the way people related to how they accessed information, how they stored it, how they preserved it was all changing at once sort of in a similar way that's happening now. Yeah, and we've mentioned
0: um, at least definitely once in depth, but we've mentioned like medieval or just in general, pre-Reformation libraries and like information relationships. like oh, in a couple nice. of films, So. Yeah, we, we did a whole episode on the name of the rose movie. <laughs> that was super <laughs> nice, fun. Nice, nice. <laughs> we were both were well, at least all at least two of us. I hope Sadie's also hype. Are <laughs> um, uh, really excited to hear all about this.
3: Yeah, very cool.
1: So we have a new segment I've been working on where I will generate AI texts and. Everyone will guess if they are a real text or written by an AI. And it's called Bot or Not. So instead of tweets this week, I had it generate articles about John Backford. So I will generate a random number so that way jay can't metagame me by guessing <laughs> if i'm going to swap from ai to human so i've numbered them all and i'm just going to generate a number okay i still lost last week even though i was meta metagaming true Backford's collection of manuscripts and printed books was acquired by the british museum in 1753 however many of the books in the collection had been damaged by his careless handling and some of the manuscripts were found to be forgeries today john Backward is largely remembered for his destruction of rare and valuable books and manuscripts. His legacy is one of carelessness and greed, not scholarship or preservation. It's long, so I'll put it in the chat too. For your forensic detecting.
0: If this is a human, it's the same kind of person who gets mad at the Internet Archive. Oh, snap.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to say human too.
3: I think it's human.
2: It sounds like the same kind of person who gets really pissed off when libraries get rid of books. The dubs are full of books,
1: which we will probably (laughs) talk about. That one is AI. Damn. Okay.
0: I didn't guess. I abstained. You didn't that on the record. I said, said, if it's human, it sounds like this, but I didn't say Um, what I thought.
1: Okay. Well, you don't gain a point either way. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Okay. John Bagford is one of the most controversial figures in the history of book collecting. His collecting methods were often criticized by his contemporaries, and his habit of destroying older books and manuscripts in order to make room for his own collection was viewed as highly destructive by many. In addition, Bagford was known for his poor record-keeping, and many of the books and manuscripts in his collection were lost or remain unidentified.
2: I'm going to wait for the expert to weigh in on this one. (laughs) I'm a little scarred
3: now, but I want to say, I think I want to say it's a bot because the last one was a bot and I didn't think it was.
0: Metagaming. (laughs) 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 I got in trouble last week for doing that. (laughs) I don't know. I was trying to like, think of like the patterns you pointed out last week, like, is it switching something halfway through?
2: I'm going to say human again.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna go with human this time. Okay, that one was AI. Justin, I so have a new is. name for the segment, though, or a new what? song for it. It should be more human than human, like, and then you should play a White Zombie.
1: Hmm, okay, That'd be
0: pretty fun. That'd be fun just because I keep singing it while we do this. <laughs> Wait, so that All one right. was AI as well?
1: Yep, okay. okay. The patron saint of perverted book lovers is John Bagford, an 18th century antiquarian who set it upon himself to compile a history of printing. With this in mind, he traveled across Britain, visiting libraries and bringing home a few title pages of old books from each visit, having torn them out as souvenirs.
3: It sounds like my (laughs) 18-month-old (laughs) wrote that. (laughs) So, I don't know, maybe I'll go with human this time. But I did like the what was the first line? The patron, patron, patron saint, saint of perverted lovers. book
0: lovers. It's kind of a weirdly perfect description. Of I love it. it. He, yeah. that's, yep. I want like a little <laughs> saint candle of, of him now. So he's like yeah. perverted saint.
1: Exactly. Light the candle. Yeah, the perverted bird. book
0: lovers. Yeah.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, that could be homemade merch idea. How do you make prayer candles? I have a
0: Shakespeare one, but I bought it at a library. Hmm. I want an Oscar Wilde one.
1: Okay, bot or not, or more human than, see, I can't ask you if it's more human than human.
2: Yeah, I'm going to say bot, bot just sense. because that means it'll be human.
1: Okay.
0: I, I want it to be a human because I want to be friends with whoever came up with patrons say to perverted book lovers.
1: <laughs> that one is human.
0: Yeah, who was it? Be my new best friend.
1: It's from an article called, I actually saved who it's from this time. To break a book, bibliophiles as book enemies.
0: Are Notes, they pro um, or anti this guy? No,
1: this is unhinged. So I cheated a little <laughs> bit because the number generator told me five, but this one was number six, but those are both humans. So it's fine. So it was going to be human either way. Here's the next like paragraph. I'll put it in the chat before. I Yeah. Start Cause it's like, I want to be their
0: friend if they're like pro him and they're like, yeah, perverted book lovers.
1: Nowadays, however, the scrapbooks merely serve as a testament to the author's barbarity. I have no idea how Bagford pulled this off, given that even then, I imagine librarians weren't exactly indifferent to people tearing out pages from library books. Perhaps Bagford was helped in his enterprise by having been one of the three founding members of the Society of Antiquaries. I imagine him as the society's equivalent of Salazar Slytherin. (laughs) One whose dark influence still continues today. Friendship
0: redacted. Friendship redacted. (laughs) (laughs) They're a fucking Harry Potter nerd. Friendship redacted. (laughs) Offer rescinded. Who is this? A bibliomaniac and book enthusiast
3: from a small country called Slovenia. All right. I've never even seen this
0: blog. Fascinating. Fascinating. Good find. No longer friendship ended with that it's author
1: <laughs> this is a very long article for like yeah. a very this is a, a work of passion
0: mm-hmm.
1: notes on book collecting bibliomania and libricide
0: <laughs> oh my god i want libricide as want like, t- <laughs> like knuckle tats <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, very okay. traumatic
1: L-I-V-R. it wouldn't it wouldn't fit it wouldn't fit if you had six fingers Speaking on one hand anything. it would yeah.
0: Yeah. Get a thumb in there.
1: Anyone who has six fingers on one hand, go for it. Get Libra side, Yeah. Okay. Well, that was bot or not.
0: You're what not the you right. in.
1: You're not the right. I'm not, I'm
0: not. What did you put in to like cue this? Did you say like just article
1: about John Bagford? Oh yeah, I did save my prompts too, so people yeah, can play around. Your prompt. Write an academic article about John ba- John Bagford destroying books, and then write an academic article critical of John Bagford. That was all I told it.
3: And what did you feed it?
1: Uh, it's GPT three, so it's already pre-fed.
0: Okay. That's the scary thing. Yeah. You don't have to give it any food; it just lives wow. off the
1: internet. But I do want to learn I how to train the- GPT three.
0: I want the sharks in the ocean that are eating the internet to eat the internet, so that this <laughs> thing doesn't like go Terminator on us. I hate it.
2: <laughs> Speaking of, we had an internet outage at work the other day, and it was because <gasps> do the squirrel- sharks get you. No squirrels (laughs) chewed through the fiber lines to like half of our branches and, and, and took down the public internet. I was like, that's,
1: that's what we get. Comrade squirrels. (laughs) Ecoterrorism.
3: I'm waiting for someone to write the book on how animals interrupt media. Like this is a big problem with lines actually all around the world, different kinds of animals interrupting the physical infrastructure of the internet or electricity. Or trees, you know, how you have to carve the trees out so they fit around the lines. That's a book waiting I would, to be written.
0: That's like I would a,
3: like, read the shit out of that. Humanist. I don't know. It'd be a really like, great book. Yeah.
1: Someone announced a book that they're releasing. I, I, it was just one of those things where I save it for later. I just, like, favorited it on Twitter. And, like, I'll get back to this. But they're writing a book about water, electricity, and internet. And it's just a book about systems. Sharks, sharks, sharks. sharks. And I'm like, that is probably one of those books that's just going to like terrify you, but it sounds really boring. But it's one of those things They're, that's like, this is all hanging on like a razor's edge.
0: A, a dude in the woods who runs all of Linux and then the folks
1: yeah. who eat the internet.
2: I mean, Log for Shell happened, and that was just because it was that X-K, XKCD comic where it was like the whole structure, and then there's like the one block, and it's like one dude who turned off his pager for a weekend. And it's like, yeah, like (laughs) the people who created Log4J were just like, it was like five dudes maintaining this and then everybody put it in everything. And yeah, the internet is incredibly rickety.
1: So Whitney, thanks for coming on to talk about AI. Uh, Good night. so, no, tell us uh, a little bit about John Bagford. Who was he and why did you want to write about him?
3: Yeah, the patron saint of perverted book lovers. Um, John Bagford was a, an antiquarian of the later 17th century. He was born, I believe, in 1650 in London. And he worked as a shoemaker originally. So he was a working class person, not somebody who had any formal education But he ended up moving into the book trade and became one of the most important kind of intermediaries between a lot of collectors, libraries, and other kind of book, you know, bibliographical spaces in the last decade or two of the 17th century. But in his kind of role as this intermediary between all these different bookish spaces that were emerging in and around London, like coffee shops, libraries, private collections, emerging kind of museums and cabinets of curiosity. He was also gathering up waste, trash, old title pages from discarded books, literally the ream wrappers off of reams of paper like the stuff used to wrap the paper playing cards anything he could get his hands on that related to a history of technology really he collected and he gathered them into these hundreds and hundreds of albums Mm -hmm. most of which are now at the british library so he's he's um (laughs) My colleague, um, Zach Lesser, recently said he might be called a magpie of, of book history. He's just collecting lots of stuff. He's gathering it. He's holding it. But because he collected all this stuff, this is why later bibliographers thought he was so perverse. Like, what are you doing with all this waste? Why are you storing it? This is weird. It's like it becomes so much that you can't even process it, right? Like a, the modern cataloger can't catalog this stuff, right? You have to chop away at it in small bits and pieces. But in its overwhelming nature, it actually, he actually ended up, in its kind of capacious collect collecting approach, he ended up collecting a lot of really cool stuff that we otherwise wouldn't have. Of course, now it's actually hard to find that stuff because it isn't cataloged. So it's this kind of interesting case study of somebody making visible, a history that otherwise would have been invisible, And I think his working class background actually really contributes to what he was able to see as important or not important. But it's also a a history of how sometimes things that are intended to elucidate, you know, the past or historical materials actually can obscure it in weird ways. And if we don't have the, you know, archival infrastructure to access this stuff, then of what use is it to the modern historian. So this, this is the kind of things that got me interested in in Bagford as a as as a as a problem <laughs> of kind of perverse book history, I guess. Yeah.
0: I desperately need like a t-shirt now. Like you know the t-shirts <laughs> of that meme that's like john brown south is a fuck like well however many dead confederates that but with like backford and like this is how many dead books and totally whatnot. yeah he, hero he's my new hero <laughs>
3: exactly i mean there's something odd about thinking of, I, I think of him as as a hero i'm kind of really he's the the one person in the book that i do these case studies of That I really think needs more attention, like drawn to him because of how cool his work is. But, you know, it it wasn't always thought to be that way. In the 19th century, he was really like taken to task over and over again for, you know, being a, a biblioclast, a bibliomaniac, somebody who destroyed books, right? So. And, and there are still people out there who are buying up books and breaking them to make a profit, right? I mean, so this is a terrible practice as well. So there's this kind of, like, I don't know, there, there is this kind of fine line with him of, of um, like, is this a good thing or not? I fall on with him it's a good thing, but does it feed into later things that we as people who care about, you know, collecting and storing the past might see as perverse or, you know, unethical,
1: yeah, I think uh, there was a story that just just made the news about wasn't it someone's uh, someone from famous musician their their letters and things were stolen and uh, sold off to different places. We'll have to do a whole magician episode on musician
0: or musician
1: musician. So I think it was oh, stuff from magician. the <laughs> Rock and Roll Hall of Fame archive. I can't remember who, but yeah, it was you. You basically when you auction these things off, you have to sell them in different pieces. Plus, there's the whole antiquities black market, which is a huge problem in the United States because it's mostly funded by Christian fundamentalists funneling money into uh, mostly jihadists, which is, you know, fun. So don't forget Hobby Lobby's Hammurabi robbing hobby. That's just a fun little way to remember it.
2: I drive by a Hobby Lobby on my way to work every day and I curse (laughs) them. It's like a Hobby Lobby and a Chick-fil-A, like right across the street from each other. And I'm like, I'm too, too queer for this. Like Hmm. you're going to come for me in the night.
1: (laughs) With their sewing needles, their live, laugh, love. Oh yeah. We'll have to talk about scrapbooking stuff too. With Bagford, there was, this was something I wasn't getting my head around. So are there two folios of his work or are there like dozens of folios is there something like forty something volumes that someone mentioned? How is yeah, it actually collected?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. There's hundreds of of his materials. There's a ton of manuscript materials he has. Things that are cataloged under as commonplace books, but are really just kind of working notebooks. He has account books. He has entire just kind of things that have been bound that once were loose pamphlets where he's, you know, he's collecting these materials to write uh, a history of the book, a history of printing. And he's very interested in the history of librarianship, the history of collecting, the history of cataloging. He's trying to grab anything that can tell us about this history. But he ultimately wanted to actually write a, a printed book, a monograph. And you know, there's there's a there's a way in which he kind of wasn't up to the task. I mean, he didn't have the formal education of the people of the time who are in the Royal Society, the emerging scientists who are writing these monographs. And so he wasn't as his his form of writing was not as accepted to those societies. And in fact, um and i think i talk about this in the chapter when he did submit some drafts of materials to be published in the philosophical transactions which was a very important journal at the time it's like the premier scientific journal of the time it was heavily edited by the editors who didn't see his you know writing as up to par it seems so he wasn't really like up to the task according to the standards of the time but Instead, he would create these notebooks. So he's got, like, huge volumes of manuscripts where he's writing out these drafts and correcting them, but then he gets kind of distracted, and he starts writing about something else, like... He'll talk about how, you know, playing cards are really important in the history of printing because it's an early form of kind of block printing that well predates movable type in Western Europe. And so he loves playing cards and he'll mention that as as part of the origins of printing, but then go off on a rant about like the history of gaming. (laughs) So he can't really kind of stay on topic in the way that was drilled into it drilled into most of us now, like, you know, as part of our schooling. Um, which I kind of love. And alongside of these manuscripts, he has these huge albums. They're very large folios that have pasted on them these scraps. And many of them are organized thematically and arranged in ways where you can kind of see the history that he's he's trying to tell you. So I kind of, uh, you know, what I was thinking about a lot when I was working with his materials was You know, he's not he's not up to the standards of the writing of the time to produce the history he wanted to write, but he was he was collecting in ways that narrate nonetheless the histories that he wanted to tell. So it made me think a lot about how like what kind of possibilities around historical storytelling open up to us if we change the media or modes in which we're working, like if we're open to somebody telling you a story by arranging things in a book, you know, what, what does that do to the kinds of stories we can tell? And you could connect this to other histories of like the museum or gallery wall or the cabinet of curiosities and things like that. But then I thought we should be more open for that, you know, to that in our scholarship as well, or, you know, just how we write history in academic, historical, you know, historical monographs.
0: Have you ever heard of or read uh, uh, the article uh, Eros in the Library by Melissa Adler? No. Um, She is a metadata scholar. I believe she's just teaching at like an high school now. But it's about this one woman in ancient Greece who sort of would classify who would like collect and classify bits of like history and stories of the men who would like visit her husband and all this stuff. And the way that it, she arranged it was kind of compared to like weaving and embroidery because of how she would like, not literally like physically, but like because of the way she would connect things and how um, aesthetic pleasure and enjoyment was a part of that classification consideration that it was like fun to look through and whatnot I'm probably butchering it but as like thing of like feminist modes of of um, of classification and curation uh, I think you would like it. I'll
3: like, I love find, that yeah I'll like I'm gonna a, check a that out
0: yeah. So
3: <laughs> no, that's exactly I mean that's exactly the kind of thing that sparked my interest in figures like Bagford is this this idea that like, you know, organization, organization, classification, these are forms of knowledge making. You all know this very very well. Scholarship we don't necessarily always know this as well. But, you know, those are forms of knowledge making and if we take that seriously over time, what emerges like what modes of interacting with the world what ways of organizing the world like what differences do we find in the past that don't just lead inevitably to what we expect to see today if that if that makes sense yeah i'll definitely check that article out
1: yeah i was um reading through the chapter and i'm curious the differences in how early modern people thought about collecting and how that was probably changing in the 17th century. How do we think about book preservation differently from how Bagford would have been thinking about it?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you're, uh, you know, at the end of the 17th century in London, you're in a moment where you're starting to see people thinking about public libraries. Before that, really, libraries are only private collections, university collections or like kind of these club like spaces. Um but you're starting to get people theorizing what would what a public library would look like, what its collections should include, like do you like simple simple questions that actually still perhaps vex us, like do you have one copy of an item or two, right? If something is used, do you want the used copy or the new copy? So you're, you're getting like a rich discourse around this at the end of the 17th century, but you're also getting private collectors becoming really serious about antiquarian, what is becoming known as antiquarian materials or rare books. So um, you're starting to get a secondhand book market. Like before that, you go out, you buy a print book, you use it up or you don't use it up. It stays in your library. You bequeath it and that's really it. You're not really going and looking for like the the cool old William Caxton rare edition of something that's, you know, very early. So You're starting to get people doing that, though, and they're doing it by going to coffee houses and looking at auction catalogs. They're going to book auctions of private libraries. And so you're getting this kind of historical consciousness around what a really old archival material is. So, you know, I was interested in Bagford because he's right there at the cusp of all this stuff that seems so like normal. We're just living in it now to to, like the rare book trade or special collections or whatever he's like living in that moment of its emergence. So yeah, he's, he's part of that effort to come up with what are the classification schemes that we need. Right. And people do all kinds of horrifying things to their collections, according to modern standards at the time. So like Samuel Pepys was one of the people who was, you know, in addition to being the notorious masturbator and diarist, he also was somebody who collected a lot of rare books And he collected ballads and broadsides and all this kind of ephemera that before that everyone thought was kind of ridiculous. And like, why would you collect that? That's not like this is ephemeral trash. Why would you collect it? Right. But he's starting to see, oh, this is part of popular culture. It's worthy of collection. So he goes around and he's gathering them up. He's even making deals with printers who are printing these ballads and saying, when you when it comes off the press, bring them to me. But then how he collects them is he cuts them like up, he cuts them in half and stuff and then pastes them on these massive sheets, which now if, if like a library ingested a large collection of historical materials, they would not cut them up and rearrange them into books, right? But that was what he thought was the way to do it. And then he would annotate the book with like the information that he had about it because there was no such thing as a kind of centralized cataloging infrastructure, like all that kind of stuff that we're very accustomed to having available wasn't there. Um, Any kind, like imagine any kind of like classification scheme that would be like standard in the profession today. That's not, that kind of stuff's not really available to anyone. So you're seeing a lot of people experimenting (laughs) with like how to organize stuff. And I always think that's cool because, you know, it gets you out of the hardened mindset that we have of, oh, this is just the way things should be and makes you see as possible that it could be done a different way.
1: Yeah, I think the expansion of the rare book trade was pretty interesting in terms of um, thinking about books as historical uh, objects and then constructing a history about them saying like, oh, this is valuable. It's worthwhile. It's not just a thing that I'm going to recycle consistently as you would have over most of the medieval period. So you'd recycle writing scraps. You would recycle faded manuscripts once you use them into binding materials. And there's a lot of stuff that you would even write over that was quite old. So I remember that a lot of we've um, people have x-rayed certain manuscripts in order to see the Greek and Roman manuscripts that were underneath them because those were being constantly scraped and rewritten over for a very long time also they were seen as radical so probably attributed some of the scraping as well
3: totally and you're starting it's in the 17th century that you start to see people interested in that those like the binder's waste the little fragments of medieval manuscript that sometimes are found in early printed books people are trying to like bring to the bodleian library proposals to collect these things because they're like no this is historical information we shouldn't discard it you know, whenever I hear those stories or read about this stuff, I'm always thinking about like, what is the thing that we're discarding now? Like nobody cared about floppy disks until fairly recently. And suddenly we're all like, oh, we have to have uh a you know, a means of preserving and saving these things. And now on eBay, you know, quote unquote, old technologies that are 20 or 30 years old, you know, go for a high amount, because there's a need for them and an interest in them that when they were only recently old, there wasn't right, like, you don't need like your iPhone six, but you're probably interested in a cell phone from like 1998. Now, right. So, so it's like, what is it that we don't care about and what are we not saving um, is always in the back of my mind with this stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think about it a lot more practically because there's also physical limitations, spatial limitations. And also there's, you know, people do sometimes look over these things and go, look, there's no real useful information here. Like this is all I, I've definitely thrown out computer rolls from the 70s because it was mostly course scheduling information. And it's like, well, we have the syllabi collection, so we've still got all that from the 70s, which I also weeded pretty heavily, too. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we uh, can't keep, but we do get a regular sort of uproar against weeding and recycling books, though, especially uh, whenever libraries tend to get rid of lots of repeat copies, high circulation copies that we no longer need that no one really wants, popular titles, things that no one's going to remember in about four or five years. People imagine these will somehow become extremely rare if we don't preserve every single copy. And so you see these very strange libraries that people make. Whereas if you wanted to collect something now that's weird, that won't be around, go to like queer spaces, go to black spaces, save those zines and manuscripts and ephemera because that's all going to be interesting in, in 50 years because no one else will have thought to have saved it. But, you know, Amazon top sellers, probably not
0: a problem we, we don't need to to keep every single um is his name uh, john grisham is that his name we don't mm-hmm. need to save every single one of those <laughs> I, I promise no definitely not
1: and libraries do cut up books actually when you do get historical collections sometimes we do chop off spines to do high-speed scanning if there's lots of copies and uh i know some ways of preserving newspapers and broadsides you have to cut them in half to scan them um but you get the and copies back. You'll,
0: you'll cut the the edge of the paper off um for like uh, uh rep- repairing and conservation work mm-hmm. um and then like ironing it and shit it's
3: really yeah th- i mean those are all really great points i you know my first my first job was at a public library um shelving books and um i, I remember the uproar <laughs> of people you know when they learned that we would regularly call the books and then put them in the dumpster out pack, you know, people would go and try to save them from the dumpster, but you're right. I mean, I would shelve 10 John Grishams and like, you know, every cart. So you don't need all of those John Grishams. Like, you know, what is, what is worthy of being saved is exactly, you know, exactly the, the question here. I mean, I have, this reminds me also, I'm in a neighborhood that has like a million little libraries. And every time I walk by one, I'm always like, what you know I've gotten a book for my kid out of one you know but mostly it's like trash that people didn't want but it makes us feel good that we're saving it in this cute little birdhouse you know I mean not to disparage the little libraries no, we don't cute, like them. But, <laughs> they're cute but like you know what is what's happening here also like it's not actually a library but that's another story but yeah so I mean I yeah it's interesting to think about like You know, so I, I, you know, there we have to obviously be discriminant in what we save, but the indiscriminate saving of someone like Bagford introduces like a new relationship that's kind of interesting. Like, what happens if somebody just like collects all of their trash for a week? Now, a librarian in 50 years probably doesn't want to deal with a box full of somebody's trash for a week from 2022, right? But it does offer an interesting snapshot of what life is like at this particular moment for a particular demographic of person right so you know there's it's I'm interested in all these questions
0: I'm a dork like so I I don't like capital P productivity but I'm very into the like note-taking knowledge management productivity niche scene online and especially in the like personal knowledge management and note-taking conversations right now there's this like anti-collectors fallacy thing where it's like you don't Don't take a highlight of everything that's good because then you just have a million highlights and don't, you don't have to write a note about everything and you don't need like, you know, because you're never going to go through them and they're not going to be useful. They're not going to be actionable. And then there's also the group that's like, it doesn't matter, like just the act of collecting it, like the jouissance, you know, (laughs) like joie de vivre. Like, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't use it later, it's digital anyway, you know, you can forget about it later. And so these conversations of like, even personally, like digitally, even so it's not even considering the space in your house, right, of like what you're going through, but what you in a virtual digital space consider worthy of capturing and holding on to, I feel like maybe that's also like, we're seeing like a shift in that discourse right now as well and how that's different on like the personal level versus the institutional level mayhaps Um, because I know there's the like yeah we weed things and we throw things away and that's fine but then there's also because there's this perception that digital is preservation that there's also the sort of like anti-digital pushback kind of happening in libraries where we're like wanting to hold on to physical things more because we're like, no, the digital's gonna break, the sharks are gonna get at it. <laughs> like we don't we don't trust like that. So I don't know if you have been seeing that kind of paradigm shift like you like would have happened around when Bagbird was doing all this stuff, or if you had thoughts on that.
3: Yeah, no, I mean that's a great point. I'm immediately just thinking how much like what you're saying how much our technological milieu that we find ourselves in is going to affect these habits, right? And that, that you're constantly like in this dance with the technology, and that that dance changes over time as the technologies change, right? And so like tracking that is part of what, you know, when we track what is interesting or not interesting over time you also are tracking what is technologically like accessible available made possible over time so you know with regards to the digital note taking for instance like i recently got an ipad cuz i'm starting a new project and i wanted to like write on a tablet and i was like i'm just going to do it i'm going to like set it all up just to be my reading tablet and i set it up so that my the things i highlight get sent directly to my wiki right And so now every time I highlight something, I have like, like thousands of words of notes from even just like a a short article. So I've highlighted half the article, I've like published it now in my wiki, which is probably like not actually legal, but whatever, right. So it's, you know, it's this whole weird thing. But the affordance of the media wiki that I use to track my notes means that I can search. So if I'm like, I was interested in the history of the lead pencil. I can search lead pencil and find the paragraph where, you know, whereas I used to like remember where something was on a page and have to thumb through the book. Now I can like use that keyword search. So it's like, you know, and I feel my brain changing, like I'm an elder millennial, I feel how my brain has changed from the 90s to now in terms of like my own personal reading and and writing habits. And then which is what what also makes me think about someone like Bagford is like, what was his mindscape? Like what was his, like, how was his brain infested with the technology of the time? And how did it affect the way he thought and worked?
1: Yeah, it definitely sounds like he has ADD. (laughs)
3: or some sort
1: of uh some sort of hoarding
3: possibly yeah
1: i've definitely known people who uh can collect but can't synthesize i've actually worked on collections like that where you get someone who's extremely good at collecting things but was would never in a million years be able to write a historical article about it so that was something i worked on in uh in grad school when i was working in special collections uh i processed a collection and was just like wow, there's all the information you need here for a nice tight article, just clean ten pages, easy. And uh, but then I met the guy who collected it, and he just you know just rambled, just talked, just sort of. That's how he was. I was like, oh, this guy's never gonna like write an article about it. Mood. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I'm trying to be better. I have like a subtle cost and everything now.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about plugging GPT into my Obsidian. So that it will, and then trying to train it on certain things in my notes to actually give me better auto generated stuff in my notes. But I do like the idea of everything you highlight going to one place, but that would require I'm only on one that. device, which would never happen.
0: No, I have that. I, I have this thing called ReadWise, and I have various things synced with it, and then it all goes into my LogSeq. Hmm. So I have that, Justin. Yeah.
3: <laughs> it's a good system. Tra- I mean, you know. Yeah. But then you're beholden to the highlight, like, and the annotation, and you have to. It makes you change how you actually highlight something, or like what you want to extract too, as opposed you to
0: just think more about context. Yeah, to make exactly. sure when you see the highlight, it's not out of context. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: I mostly I mostly use highlighting to so that I don't go back and read something I've already read. So I highlight a lot, so that way I can easily scroll back up and go, "Oh, okay, that's where I was." So it's sort of a memory aid in that way, because I just never finish an article in one sitting anymore. We did an episode about scrapbooking, which I, I know this is not technically scrapbooking, but it is similar in some ways. Although I have been curious this whole time since, I mean, did he make a lot of money from the book trade? I mean, how was he really able to afford this habit that he had?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. He probably did make a decent income from selling these books, but also he was working with a bookseller who would just offer him access to material. Like if something wouldn't sell, you know, Bagford could have it, like literally just stuff in his his trash can. So I think that really helped feed his habit. Um, Yeah, the scrapbooking question is interesting. So all of the examples that I talk about in cut, copy, paste, they often fall under this rubric of scrapbooking. It doesn't, I mean, as, as you know, it's not something that actually becomes a practice until the late 19th century, mid 19th century, late 19th century. Scrapbooking is a, is in my mind, a function of the industrialization of print and the, like having access to lots of materials. Because even though Bagford is in a changing media environment, he doesn't have access to the kind of materials you have in the 19th century. Like he's still, you know, scrounging around for playing cards and stuff like that to include in his books. But there is a scrapbook like quality to to them, which is really attractive to me. I think of him, like he sits alongside a range of other books that I have seen in many different libraries, large and small, in the US, in the UK, that are what I tend to think of as design portfolios. There's no good like form genre term for them. But they are books where somebody has taken either a blank album or some kind of found notebook, like an old manuscript and assembled something thematically. So I've seen a lot of these that are like, Somebody got really interested in woodcut initials or interested in typography and they like cut them out and paste them into these albums. We have one here at Penn where some 19th century Italian person got really obsessed with printers devices and woodcut borders and just like cut a bunch of them out and pasted them into an album and his so he kind of falls within that where you know which now you might find in like a design library or design collection but at the time like a scrapbook is something for your memory speaking of like note taking and aid memoir and stuff like that but and it it like it often is personal and like evokes a connection to a particular subject whereas I see these design portfolios as more somebody who's interested in something like some feature and they're drawing out that interest through collection and pasting them down because they didn't have any other media in which to do it. Like a book's a very useful storage medium. A codex is a very useful storage medium. If you have a lot of loose prints or woodcut initials, it's a great place to like glue them and keep them and then give them to your sons or daughters or whoever, right? So yeah, it's, it's scrapbooks, not like it's, it's part of scrapbooking, but I think in the popular, I will say this is my one negative thing I'll say about scrapbooking, which is that in the popular imagination, scrapbooking has taken up, been been taken to mean all things like pasted into a book and i think that dilutes the power of understanding it as a particular genre that does particular things and it obscures the many other ways that people have collected used the codex to collect stuff over time
1: yeah we definitely talked about the ideology of scrapbooking i really enjoyed that episode um I yeah think it she's didn't a, get a enough, feminist uh,
0: scrapbooker this is, is mm-hmm. her thing and she's against like Big, big scrapbooking. <laughs> very scrapbooking yes. Industrial complex. <laughs> big scrapbook. They're very similar to zines. Yeah. Are. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it was, I can't, I've already lost my train of thought because I wrote a note, but I didn't write the note well. But we were talking about the, how Bagford sort of was sorting materials into these books. And I was thinking about how Kristen talked about. Using things around the house as materials, so like that's how you figure out the everyday collection of things that are actually meaningful. You use the back of tickets, you use envelopes, you use pieces of paper you've already bought. You don't go out and buy materials for scrapbooking. You use the materials you already bought because that's what you gravitate towards, so that's what you build your scrapbooks out of. So yeah, like I have like this like paper that I'm not using, so I just cut it up into like note cards. This was something I was trying to make stencils out of, and it's the wrong size. So it's like okay, I could turn this into a scrapbook. Instead, I'm just using it to write notes. But you know, I, I am curious about one how he had the time to do all this, but two sort of if there was a, an ideological frame for like you know why preserve things in this particular way is he unique in the way that he's collecting? I mean, obviously collects a lot of everything, but were there other people doing similar things?
3: There are people in the 18th century who are making similar kinds of albums, but he's one of the earliest that I found that's actually interested in collecting what I would call specimens. He calls them specimens like halfway between a specimen and an experiment And I think what he means by that is it's like a little material piece of something that puts you in touch with the history that that thing evokes, which is similar to scrapbooking and finding things around the house, which can be evocative in certain ways, but they're often more like personally evocative and you have an aesthetic goal behind what you're doing or memorializing, like you want to memorialize something Whereas Bagford, I think, was really trying to tell history. I mean, you're seeing a historical consciousness around the history of technology come into being in his notebooks, one that you don't really see before. So to give a a kind of counter example, you have a very important collector, Robert Cotton, working at the end of the 16th century, about a century before Bagford. He's one of the earliest people to collect really old manuscripts like most famously uh the beowulf manuscript is in his <laughs> is in his collection um and also became one of the founding collections of the british uh, museum library in 1753 along with some of like harley and these other people that were bagford's clients so anyways cotton's working a hundred years before bagford he's also collecting stuff but the way that he collects things is pretty weird. So like he has this one manuscript that has, I don't remember it. Cause I am not, I'm neither like a medievalist or an ancient person who works in ancient times, but it's one of the earliest forms of the gospel. That's like on purple vellum. He has two leaves of it. He also has a piece of papyrus that I believe is a, a Gregorian text that was written contemporaneously with Gregory. And he also has a 15th century, I believe, breviary of Margaret of York. So he's got like, Things from across about a thousand year time span in multiple media papyrus, vellum, this beautiful medieval illuminated breviary. And he doesn't seem to have whole pieces because this book is like a couple pieces of the purple vellum and it's the papyrus fragment that he pastes on the middle of a leaf. And then he cuts out some of the illuminations from the prayer book, the 15th century prayer book, and then like pastes them around the papyrus. So he's doing something like Bagford, where he's creating these media assemblages, these scrappy kind of things. And there seems to be an almost aesthetic interest. Like why would he paste the decorations around this piece of papyrus, if not to show this is a really important thing, but it's not like, There's no, there's not the same historical consciousness that you see in Bagford. Like, Bagford is like, like almost mounting things that he's like, these are important specimens, like, preserve this, you know, title page, preserve this piece of vellum, preserve this parchment, it shows you what parchment is like, right? That's not the same as like creating this little like cool papyrus like, framework. So, you know, Cotton is also an antiquarian, but there's just something different about his use of fragments. And that's what I was trying to get at with Bagford, this rise of like, and I think it has to do with the rise of classification schemas, like public librarianship, collecting habits around secondhand materials that is not really like in place when Cotton's doing his
0: work. Can I go off about Cotton's classification system and how this relates? Yeah.
3: Oh yes, of course. Yeah, very, yes. inter- <laughs> very interesting. <laughs> so,
0: as, as far as the like aesthetic aspect, because like his he classified like you know there were he has call numbers and those call numbers are still used for those items that are in the British Library. They weren't based on meaning, not that I can tell. Um, So the Sir Robert Cotton system is he, for for all of you who haven't taken an English 101 course (laughs) at at university when you were getting your English degree and happen to have a medievalist as your professor, the Sir Robert Cotton system, he would have like bookcases. And what he would do is he would have um, busts of various Roman emperors on the top of each case. And then books were on the shelves, right? And so what the call number for each of the manuscripts or items in his library was the name of the Roman emperor, what shelf it was on and what number it was over. So there's this like fun element of him getting to like decorate with all his like nerdy Roman busts. And then there's not any sort of like subject association or anything. It's just like where they are physically within that. So my license plate is literally <laughs> what the, um, the call number is for the uh, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight manuscript from him which is a uh, cotton nero ax because it was in the nero bookcase on the first shelf 10 over uh,
2: i've seen <laughs> it a by deep the way
0: cut. <laughs> it's a deep fucking cut right i don't remember what the beowulf one is but the beowulf <laughs> one is singed Because there was a fire at his library and it almost burned the Beowulf, the only Beowulf manuscript we have. We almost lost it because his library caught a fire or something. But yeah, so this idea of like play and enjoyment, like did you like, you know, there's this like mounting and preservation that you're talking about with uh, Bagford, but is there a sense of play there as well?
3: Absolutely. And this is, you know, he, he includes, for instance, like, what's a good example, like a letter from his son as one of his specimens, right? So there's kind of like little personal gesture. I think that, you know, at one point in one of the manuscripts that I talk about, um, at length in the book, he has this um, description of a famous writing master in London, and like has some examples of his advertisements. But then this guy dies, and there are some ballads out there, um, kind of making fun of him for dying from being an alcoholic. And he like pastes one of the ballads like next to his advertisement, right? So. So there's definitely these little moments of like, yes, it's a history and yes, it's collecting historical materials, but the juxtapositions like bring to the fore other little micro histories that you could pull from the albums. Um, and yeah, I think the, the 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 play also comes through just an interest in design, right? Like, like having three emblems that all incorporate trees or like three copies of the same printer's device, like next to each other, like not just looking for the singular specimen but like an interest in reproduction and like do these three things are they really the same or not right like spot the difference um i i think there's a lot of
0: shit right there
3: (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it's rhizomatic right like the albums totally are just little like rhizomatic networks which is what i was trying to pull out is like if you actually look at these things and don't just like take the description of him as a bibli class like what are the networks that emerge that really give evidence of his creativity of his playfulness of his imagination like how can we honor the work that he did rather than just saying like oh he couldn't he didn't complete his you know he didn't complete his book like he must be, you know, incapable of it or something.
0: I had to stop myself from doing like the Pee-wee Herman, like, ah, like Pee-wee's Playhouse word of the day thing when you said Rise Attic.
1: <laughs> there was a part in the chapter, in chapter three, about Melvin Wolf's work and trying to catalog all of the works that are in Bagford. And I thought this was pretty interesting. Could you give us a quick overview of what Melvin Wolf was trying to do?
3: Yeah, this is an early digital humanities project. Melvin Wolf was a young assistant professor. I forget where he was at the time, but he knew about Bagford's books and was really interested in the title pages because. For you know, an, an English literary historian, the title pages might have evidence, and in fact, they do have evidence of books that we don't have anymore. So, it's he was like, let's catalog the title pages. It might tell us something about you know what was saved, what wasn't, what's behind, what what was left behind. So he makes this catalog. He goes to the British Library. He works there with them, but he realizes he needs bigger technologies than just writing this out by hand so he develops a relationship with the catalogers there and basically puts every takes every title page and puts it on an individual punch card that has i think nine different categories where he's like listing out like what is the imprint on the title page what's the date like different metadata categories then the punch cards go back to where he is and at that point i think he's at penn state harrisburg and he has access. This is, I believe, the 1970s. He has access to time sharing on a massive kind of like IBM computer there, and he uses he uses the system to and with like some simple Fortran po- programming to produce this catalog, prints it out, and then they create you know like photo. They basically like take the British Library takes photographs of it and then like prints the photographs effectively, of the printout of the catalog. So a really early digital humanities project in one of the earliest digital humanities journals and a really important catalog that, that needs to be digitized. But here's one of the ironies. So I worked. I was trying to digitize it. So like scanning it and stuff. But the 1970s like typography doesn't OCR super well and also is not like how the catalog was printed is not in a super easy like format to figure out plus he's using non-standard like codes that then have like his own encoding system that then has to be translated so like he puts he's like referencing other catalogs which you then would have to like kind of go in and hand link to so it ended up being like too big of a project it's one of my like failures in that chapter actually i would love to follow up with it but too big of a project to digitize what should have is digital and should have continued to be digital all the time. Um, I had one of my best parts of researching that book was I called him because he's, he is still alive, although well-retired And said, you know, I'm so interested in this project. Do you still have the punch cards? And he was like, oh, I just threw them out like last year. (laughs) So I missed the opportunity to like see the punch cards of this original project. But all props to Melvin Wolf and some of these early digital humanities people who did really detailed work to produce some of this stuff that is still underutilized because it's invisible to the web, right? If something's not on the web now, it's not thought to be digital. So yeah, uh, really, really fascinating little history at the end of that chapter that is worth, you know, looking back to, you know, what these early forebears of digital humanities, like how they worked and where their catalogs and stuff like that are these days.
1: You would hate to get like halfway through the project and realize you needed like 11 categories on your punch card. Like, I just imagine that because I I classify, I'm working on classifying some surveys right now and we have to, I mean, luckily we can just use Qualtrics and fix the survey, but we're trying to digitize these old surveys going back to like the 80s or so and trying to figure out the best way to do it. And instead of digitizing them, we're just going to re-input all the data anonymously. So that way we don't have to keep all of the social security numbers and stuff that people felt they needed to take because researchers are insane people who think they just need data that they don't need. IRBs, man, they're, they're around for a reason. But I thought what was really interesting you mentioned was when Wolf did this categorization, he's interested in the titles and everything, but Bagford's collection are, it's a, it leaves out a huge category of things that are miscellaneous. So like the playing cards, the scraps, the day-to-day objects. And that's basically more or less uncharted territory for someone who wanted to do research on that.
3: Yeah, this is another one of the ironies of Wolf's catalog is like it made again, I'm interested in that visible invisible line, like it made visible a lot of materials that, that we now can see like this book doesn't exist, but the title page still does what's up with that, that can spur more research, but it actually in some odd way, like obscured the fragments that resist that kind of cataloging, right? So like, if there's just a little piece of a decorative woodcut border in that book, it just gets cataloged as miscellaneous. And it might say like woodcut initial or something in whoops catalog. And then, yeah, you're right. All the other, many, many other albums that Bagford has full of things like playing cards and ream wrappers are just like, not, not classifiable in this way at all. So, but he was, you know, he was linking each title to an, a short title catalog number. So he was trying to like plug Bagford's work into the stuff that, that was being used by bibliographers and literary historians at that time in the 1970s, our interests have, uh, you know, some of our interests have moved on and we want the ephemeral, you know, weird trash. And how do, how do we catalog that in a way that makes it, visible is an interesting question um towards the end of this project i realized that some of bagford's albums have been microfilmed and are now as a result on ebo early english books online as part of the thomason tracks i believe where eeb or whatever whoever was responsible at the time for ebo went through and microfilmed ephemeral stuff in these tract collections at the British libraries to try to fill out EBO or EEB at the time, I I believe. And so now there's like weird microfilmed fragments that as a result have been cataloged, but they've been taken out of their context. So you have, there might be a page with three fragments on it and you just see like one fragment which of course, the whole point of Bagford's work was showing through visual layout and design an assemblage of materials. So, so the, the the whole like undercurrent of his story is how constraining the digital is and how invisible actually it makes a lot of materials
1: and classifying in general. I mean, with those cataloging rules, I mean you've got to catalog the microfilm somehow, and so you get all these half records and pointless records that point you around in circles and happens all the time we like to end on an action-oriented question and i know we have a lot of graduate students who listen to the show if they were interested into doing pursuing work like you do uh, a lot of them are in digital humanities some of them are i mean most of them are, are involved in libraries but we've got people all over the place what would you advise them to do if they wanted to look into if this is one, something they want to do
3: yeah oh great question one thing that I was told by one of my advisors in grad school, Kate Hales, she said to me, this was a great thing that I've never forgotten. She probably doesn't remember it at all. But she said, what you're interested in, there's connections between them. So you have to keep probably a physical list of the things you're interested in. And it might seem like they're totally disconnected. Like, why am i you know interested in like this 14th century manuscript but also like really want to learn this coding language to do this certain thing right but there's a reason why you're interested in those things you just haven't found that kind of overarching like question that you're actually asking. So keep track of that stuff and then you'll get to your question. It's like a lifelong thing. It's not a, like a thing that happens in five or 10 years. It's a lifelong process of figuring out like what are, what are your questions? And then something even more tangible is if you're interested, especially in like weird old library booky stuff, find the keywords that you want to search on, like find your method of searching in libraries. So like every time I go to a city, I'll try to visit whatever is the local special collections and I will search on cut, pasted, inserted, interleaved, like all these things that show up in the copy specific notes that indicate something cool has happened with this book or manuscript. And that, like I've come across so many weird random things because the form genre terms don't really work for a lot of interesting materials. And like the, like libraries as you all know are like this like iceberg and you only see the tip of it, like 10% of the materials get used over and over again. And there's this like the great unread 90% that nobody's looking at. And there are, there are stuff out there like waiting to have its story told once you figure out how to find it.
1: Definitely, no. That's good advice. I try and always get my student employees to bring their their interests into the work because my work is pretty flexible, so I can tell them to work on whatever they want. So uh, I always try and get them to bring like whatever you think is cool. You can suggest a project about, and we'll try and figure out a way to make it work. But you you know, just you just spend a couple months getting used to doing the work here. And then if your brain starts making connections, we can follow those to wherever they'll go. So I have a, I have a digital heritage intern I'm allowed to hire for. And my first choice was actually a med student. because I just thought, that'd be fun. Let's see if we can get a med student to think about digital collections.
0: Yeah, I, I'm really excited because I work at a music conservatory and I get graduate fellows as student workers. And I am going to be the cool, hip supervisor that's like, hey you person who plays harpsichord if you come up with a cool idea let's do your cool harpsichord idea in the library so that's great advice
3: yeah absolutely like i mean my i I work with a lot of undergraduates as research assistants and i've had many good ones one of the best ones that i've worked with her name is zoe braccia and she helped me a lot with all the digital resources for this project and when I was interviewing to hire her, I interviewed like 12 different people. And there were people who had a lot more interest and expertise in women's literature and early modern literature. And she was just excited. <laughs> and like what she brought to the project was immense. I mean, she, she saw things in the materials that I didn't see precisely because she was curious, but non-expert. So I think like curiosity actually is more valuable sometimes than like the expertise and in a subject matter, which will, will come, you know, with time.
1: Yeah. As I was saying to, uh, to my grad assistant, I always try to explain like the processes and I was explaining the hiring process I was going through. And I was like, I almost always get nothing but qualified candidates so I, you know, and sometimes I might as well just flip a coin because like they're all equally as worthy of the job, but it's sort of just trying to figure out like, okay, whose CV is basically going to look the best from doing this at the end of the day? Because like history students don't get a whole lot of opportunities to get cool stuff on their CV. And so that's always a consideration, but I mean, go into a whole thing about hiring ethics, it's, ugh. I wish I didn't have to deal with it, but I guess it's better to deal with it than be a supervisor who doesn't care. So we are good to wrap up. Is there anything else you want to plug? Do you want to plug your social media, any upcoming work, or do you want people to leave you alone?
3: I'm happy for anyone to find me online. Uh, You can read the book online, open access with lots of pictures of Bagford stuff if you want to find that. And yeah, I'm, my new stuff is the history of electronic textuality and looking at different coding things in the 19th century, telegraph codes, but also like different ways of encoded printing and punch cards and the jacquard loom and all that kind of stuff so if you have any cool things related to that or just want to chat about it i'm like in the early stages and love to talk
1: about this stuff i'm sure there's tons of people who listen to this who be interested in talking with you more about it okay uh thanks for coming on
3: yeah thank you so much for having me yeah
1: good night